0: We've noticed in previous weeks that the book of Zechariah is addressed to men and women who are building a city. Now that was true for those who first heard from Zechariah, they were building a city out of bricks. But it's also true for us today, because we are building a city of living bricks. The New Testament calls the men and women who make up the church of Jesus Christ living stones. The New Testament says those living stones are being built together into a city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And even as God spoke through Zechariah 500 years before Jesus came, God was already looking ahead to that city. Back in chapter 2, God said the Jerusalem that he was going to build will be a city without walls. God said, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. And I will be its glory within. Now, no doubt, Zechariah's first audience would have realized that God was talking about something much greater than the city they were building in their day. But it's only as we read the New Testament that we understand exactly what God had in mind. The New Testament tells us the church is that city without walls, surrounded by God and filled with God's presence. So it's important for us to realize the New Testament didn't change the meaning of the book of Zechariah. The New Testament explained the meaning of Zechariah. And as we turn to Zechariah again this morning, we're going to hear more about God's city. Our passage contains a series of promises for God's city. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 957. And I'm going to read from chapter 12, verse 1, just into the beginning of chapter 13. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord. Who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations." All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic, and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a brazier in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This is God's word. This passage contains four promises for God's city. And when we realize that God's city equals God's people, we can put the promises like this. God's people will be preserved in the midst of opposition. They will be made effective and strong. They will be moved to mourn over their sin. And they will be cleansed from their sin. First of all, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, God's people will be preserved in the midst of opposition. Right at the beginning, chapter 12 tells us what we're about to read is a prophecy. It's a promise for the future. And as we've already noticed, God is delivering this prophecy about 500 years before the New Testament. And verse 1 then points us straight to the Lord and his creating power. In the second half of verse 1, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person. The Lord we're talking about here has power over the big things, heaven and earth. And he also has power over something as personal and unpredictable as the human heart. The human spirit within a person. The God we're talking about has power that is as wide as the earth, as high as the heavens, and as deep as the human heart. And here in our passage, God promises to use every bit of that power for the good of his people. The passage starts on the big scale. We see God's power in the face of all the nations of the earth. We're told that God's people will be opposed by the whole world. But God promises this city of his will stand firm. Look again at verse 2. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. You'll notice God mentions both Judah and Jerusalem here. Judah was the larger area that contained Jerusalem. And the names are being used pretty much interchangeably here. God uses two different illustrations to explain how his city will stand firm. First, he says Jerusalem will become a cup that sends its attackers reeling. In other words, the city will be like a tankard of alcohol. Those who attack the city will become like drunken soldiers, staggering about and falling over. They are not going to succeed. Then God says Jerusalem will be like an immovable rock. Those who try to move it will injure themselves. When we go to visit my mom and dad, the boys love to go to the beach and throw stones into the water. They can do that all day. And I'm usually happy to let them do it all day. And when it comes to throwing stones into the water, the bigger the better. The bigger the stone, the bigger the splash. But eventually, in their search for bigger stones, they come to a stone that's too big. Too firm in its place. And you can grunt all you like with a stone like that. You can even get mom and dad and even granddad to help. But that rock is staying where it is. God says, I will use my power to make my city like that. A rock that even all the nations of the earth together are not able to move. Then in verse 4, God says he will create confusion among those enemies. Panic and madness and blindness among their armies. And we're told that as God's people see all of this, they will say in their hearts, verse 5, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. This is a picture of God preserving his people in the face of every kind of attack. The New Testament tells us it's a picture of God preserving his church. In John chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because the powerful God of Zechariah chapter 12 is at work to preserve his church. And you'll notice God doesn't promise that his people will avoid trouble and attack. In fact, he assures us of the opposite we will have trouble in this world. But God promises to preserve his church in the midst of trouble and attack. The strength and endurance of the church doesn't come from having big numbers or political influence. It doesn't come from having hefty financial resources. No, often the church has none of those things. But the church is strong because the Lord Almighty is her God. The Lord of the church is the same Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth. But God doesn't just promise to preserve his people. He promises they will be made effective and strong. In verse 6, God says, They'll be like a fire that spreads. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a brazier in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. God's people will not just stand firm, they'll be like wildfire, tearing through fields of grain and piles of dry wood. Now that's a picture. And the book of Acts tells us how that spreading fire actually took shape for the church. Acts tells us that on the day the church began, on the day of Pentecost, God's spirit came like tongues of fire on Jesus' followers. And in the months and years that followed that day, the church and its message did spread like fire through fields of grain. One popular book on Acts is called The Spreading Flame. By the end of Acts, the good news about Jesus had reached all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. And everywhere that message spread... Men and women were being not destroyed by it, but gripped and changed by it. They were consumed by the life-changing truth of the gospel. And that spreading flame is still moving through the world. Sometimes it's moving in spectacular ways. And sometimes in smaller ways. As lives are touched in ones and twos and threes. God is still showing himself faithful to his promise. Not only to preserve his church, but also to make it effective in this world. One of the great things about recognizing God's power is that we begin to put less emphasis on human power. Many of you will have been watching Wimbledon the last couple of weeks. And when we watch that, we can't help admiring the human abilities that we see there. Strength and endurance and hand-eye coordination. In terms of physical ability, you and I are just inferior to those athletes. And we prove it if we try to pick up a tennis racket and copy them. But it is not like that among God's people. We might forget that sometimes. We might look at the natural abilities of other people in the church and assume that we are inferior. But the New Testament tells us all God's people, all those who trust in Christ, receive the same Holy Spirit. With all the strength the Spirit is able to supply. Yes, we do differ in our physical and mental abilities. But we share in the same Spirit of God. And we are strong in his strength. There is no superiority or inferiority among those who have the Holy Spirit of God. And we see this foreshadowed here in our passage. Look at verse 7. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The city of Jerusalem had a similar position in Israel to the position London has in England today. It was the center for business and worship and for royal power. King David had chosen Jerusalem as the royal city. But here God promises a day when the inhabitants of Jerusalem, even those with royal ancestry, they will have no advantage over those who live in the surrounding areas of Judah. In fact, God talks literally about the tents of Judah. Those who live in the big, sophisticated city will be on a level with those who live in tents in the countryside. And even the feeblest of them will be like David, like a king. Even, verse 8, like God. I take that to mean that each of God's people will be filled with power from God. And we're told they will be as useful to God and as equipped by God as the angel of the Lord. That's an amazing picture of how all God's people are strong in the Lord. However you and I may feel about ourselves, however aware we might be of our human inadequacies, we have God's promise that even the feeblest among us will receive strength from him. Maybe you came here this morning very aware of your weakness. Maybe physical weakness. Maybe weakness in the face of some temptation. It could even be that you look around the church family and you feel that you don't really belong. You wonder if your faith is too weak. Maybe you wonder if your understanding is too limited. and you may be feeble in all of those ways but god promises you strength as you turn to him he will supply all that you need so far god has made great promises he promises a people preserved and effective and strong but that is not where it all starts It starts with men and women coming face to face with their own evil. In verses 10 to 14, God says he begins with our hearts. He says God's people will be moved to mourn over their sin. Look down to verse 10 of chapter 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. What these verses are telling us is that before God fills his people with strength, he will bring his people to their knees. You'll notice this brokenheartedness is not something that people stir up in themselves. This is a gift from God. He says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. So God promises he will be the one to initiate this. And then he says a very unusual thing in verse 10. They will look on me the one they have pierced. God's talking about himself. So we have to ask, how have these people pierced him? Well, if we think about Israel historically, in a sense, they have stabbed him in the heart. Generation after generation has turned away from God. They've rejected his grace and his mercy. All of that is like a stab in the heart to God. So we can make sense of that part of the verse. But after that, the verse becomes very difficult to understand. Look at it again. They will look on me the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. How in the same statement about being pierced can God be talking about himself and about someone else? Well, I dare say that this verse was a mystery to Zachariah's audience, and I would guess that it remained a mystery for 500 years. But during the life and death of Jesus Christ, the meaning of these words finally became clear. The Apostle John spent several years with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He watched Jesus' life. And he saw Jesus' power. John saw that the man, Jesus Christ, had all of the attributes of Almighty God. He was God become man. And then later, as Jesus hung on the cross, John stood watching him. And finally, John understood. It was read for us earlier. As John describes Jesus' body being taken down from the cross, he quotes these words from Zechariah They will look on the one they have pierced. John understood. Hundreds of years before, when Jesus spoke these words through Zechariah, he was not just talking about some metaphorical wound. He was not just saying our rebellion has made him feel sad. God was talking about being actually pierced all the way to death and all because of our sin. When the Bible talks about mourning over our sin, it does not mean mourning because our sin has made our lives hard. The whole world mourns that way over sin. When our sin brings painful consequences on us, we all say, I wish I hadn't done that. Because now I have to put up with this thing, this consequence of my sin. This broken marriage or this child I have to bring up by myself or this health problem I've got, this disease or this jail sentence or this debt. I am not for a moment suggesting those things are always the result of sin. Quite obviously they are not. But sometimes they are. Our sin comes back to bite us, and we mourn. When it comes to mourning the personal consequences of our sin, we are all experts. But biblical mourning over sin starts by looking on the one we have pierced. It starts by realizing it was my sin that pierced him. Yes, the Roman soldiers hammered in the nails, the Jewish leaders set up the betrayal, and the crowd in Jerusalem shouted, crucify, but my sin played its part that day. My pride and lust and greed and selfishness, it was my sin that pierced him there. If we haven't begun to see that we killed the Son of God, then we have not begun to mourn over our sin. True mourning over sin doesn't start with what it means for us. It starts with what it meant for Jesus. Verse 10 says, They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The one we pierced is an only child. He is a firstborn son. During Jesus' ministry, the Father announced, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The one we have pierced is God's one and only son. And the one we have pierced is also a king. That's what verse 11 tells us. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. That's very obscure to us. So what's the significance of it? Well, apparently Hadad-Rimon was a place in Megiddo. And it was at Megiddo that Israel did some of his most heartfelt mourning. Generations before Zechariah, at one of Israel's lowest points, a young man called Josiah came to the throne of Israel. And he began to turn the people back to God's word. But during a battle against the Egyptians on the plain of Megiddo, Josiah was wounded by archers. And he later died. And 2 Chronicles tells us that in the aftermath of that, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. That was a memorable period of mourning. The people then mourned for God's king, although they had not pierced him. It was the Egyptians who did that. So then what about our mourning Over God's perfect King, who we have pierced. Well, if it ended there, the picture would be pretty bleak for us. It's necessary for us to recognize our part in piercing the Son of God. But if that's all there is to it, then there is only despair for us. But look how chapter 13 begins. And this follows directly from what chapter 12 has been talking about. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God's people will be cleansed from their sin. Every ancient city needed a fresh water supply. And God says his city is going to be no different. But the fountain God promises here is not for drinking from. You'll notice it's for washing away sin and impurity. So what exactly is this fountain? Well, remember the context. God has been talking about the one they have pierced. The pierced one is the source of this fountain that washes away sin. And 1 John tells us it's the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. William Cooper may well have been thinking about both these passages when he wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The piercing that meant an unjust death for Jesus means a gracious opportunity of life for us. The book of Isaiah tells us, he was pierced for our transgressions. And by his wounds, we are healed. The piercing of Jesus Christ was a terrible event. It should cause us to mourn the sin that put him on the cross. And that same piercing is the greatest reason we have to praise our God. The blood of Jesus is God's cleansing fountain for all those who mourn their sin. We can be cleansed and forgiven because his death paid for our sin. And God's fountain is still flowing today. It's still powerful today. It's still able to wash away our guilt and sin today. And our next two songs call us to come, confessing our sin, and have our guilt washed away through the one who was pierced for our salvation. Before we meet around the Lord's table, we're going to sing, Come and see, and then, my Lord, what love is this?